Good morning again, and welcome to Evanston Bible Fellowship. We're so excited that you're here to worship with us. Uh, one exciting thing about the life of our church is that many times throughout the year, we have other men come to the pulpit and preach. Uh, it makes for a very exciting year at EBF. Uh, one of our values is that uh, all the men who are gifted and capable and want to serve in this way uh, are able to do so. Uh, and I'm excited to introduce this morning's preacher to you, uh, Brandon Waybright is going to be preaching to us. Brandon is a professor of graphic design at Trinity International University, uh, and he and his wife Kelsey have been at Evanston Bible Fellowship for a couple of years now. They're involved with a great ethos community, uh, and he's, he's a good friend of mine, and I'm really excited you get to hear from him. I thought I would share with you just one fun fact about Brandon. Uh, two fun facts, you know, just two fun facts. One, uh, they have a, a pet hedgehog, which is, I think, awesome, named Amy. Awesome. Um, and did you, yeah, that's, I think that's really cool. Um, but the other one I thought was interesting is that, is that Brandon has a number of interesting hobbies. One of them is that he does parkour, which is basically where you run in some direction as fast as you can and jump over whatever you see. Um, so if you're in the front few rows here, just look out. If he looks excited during the sermon, just put your shield up. Now, come on, Brandon, bring us the word. I'm excited you guys get to hear from him this morning. Thanks, Andy. <laughs> uh, just so you don't have to like do that rush to flip open your Bibles to the place we're looking, it's 1 Samuel 25. You want to already start that race, you know? Uh, I thought, though, that we'd start today by making just a few confessions, because I thought, you know, first time preaching here, what better thing to do than to totally discredit myself and give you reasons to question me, yeah? Okay? So, confession number one. I am a pew person. I spend most of the Sundays sitting in the pews with all of you. In fact, you know, every once in a while I get to play music, but in general there's nothing particularly special about me on any given Sunday other than that I get to gather with all of you, and I love that. So it's really special to, be, to have this opportunity to share from the other side of the pulpit. But I'm a pew person and an artist, which makes me a pew person with basically a short attention span. Um, I'm like that, the nightmare for the preacher. I'm, I'm just desperately trying to stay focused, but my mind wants to go all over the place. So I'm going to try to help a little bit with that, but I don't know if I'll live up to it. Um, but I do have to work to stay attentive. And one of the things I loved about getting to prepare a message for us today is that it forced me to open my Bible with a focus that I probably should always bring to it. You know, not just reading it to try and get a story out of it or learn some new Christian lingo that I can apply somewhere in my week, hopefully, but to actually figure out what's in here that's going to change our lives. And I believe we actually have that in the passage today. I believe that we have it in the passage every day. But I wondered if you might just take a moment to pray that that would happen for us today, that we might see our lives changed. I think we have a slide here that you guys can pray along with me. All right? God... Grant us strength to look into your word. Give us eyes to see your guidance in our lives. Help us to be engaged and thrilled by your voice. May your word move us not only to contemplation, but to action. May we be transformed by your word. Amen. I mean, it's beautiful to hear you guys all praying in unison together. Confession two, and this one will be probably harder to forgive me for. I'm sorry. I'm a vegetarian. This happened shortly after I read this book called Eating Animals, and it sits on my bookshelf. 
No book I have ever owned has struck more fear into the hearts of my house guests than that book. People who look at it say, not only do I not want to read it, but oh gosh, I can't read that, I love meat. Okay? And maybe, you know, there's stuff in the book that isn't necessarily true. That's maybe how they feel. But I think a lot of people are afraid that if we open this and read this, I might find out something I don't like, and that might make me change a habit. The author of that book, uh, his name's Jonathan Safran Foer, and he kind of describes that process like pretending to be asleep. And that's an important thing, not sleeping, but pretending to be asleep. You see, he says this, while it's always possible to wake a person who's sleeping, no amount of noise is going to wake up someone who is pretending to be asleep. And I say this to you not because I think we need to talk about vegetarian, and there was much rejoicing, um, but I think we often pretend to be asleep when we come to the Bible. And not, not, not by an outright refusal to read, but perhaps in a rush through it, you know? Or perhaps it's that we only open it and we're only willing to see the things that we really want to see. You see, there's some part of us that recognizes that if we open this Bible and just say, I'm going to believe this thing and make my life change to conform to it, we realize that's probably going to mess things up for us. Our tidy little existences are going to get a little less tidy. It's a terrifying thing opening your Bible and saying, whatever I read here, I'm going to try to change my life from, based on this. But it's probably also the only way we should open the Bible. And so I would like to just pray for us in that way for one moment as well. So let's pray. God, help. We don't see the world in the way that you see it. Conform us to your vision. Help us hear you. Make our hearts malleable and discerning. Make our hands and feet willing. Help us love one another and see your work in each of our lives. For you are sovereign and you are on the throne. Amen. Okay, my last confession. I'm not a pastor. I'm not on staff here. So, you know, if at the end of this you're super upset with everything you've heard, don't worry, I won't be back next Sunday to preach. Okay? We can just hang on until next week, right? However, I am a pastor's son. And as a pastor's son, I have been, you know, the sermon illustration a time or two. So I couldn't resist the urge to turn the tables when I had a chance. <laughs> so without further ado, a short story about my father. <laughs> my father grew up in the hills of West Virginia. Now, he was a, a young and fairly active child. He liked exploring the mountain streams and woods, going fishing. And my grandparents, well, they became Christians a little later in life. But when they did, they went whole hog for it, all right? They were going to every church function. So, of course, my father was also going to go to things like vacation Bible school. Now, it may surprise you, but for an active child, the idea that part of summer was going to be dedicated to this thing that had the word school in it was a little tricky. There may have been some resistance to that, all right? And one summer, his mother called him into the kitchen to ask him a question. She said, Greg? You're getting old enough now to start making your own decisions. So, are you going to vacation Bible school this summer? And I have to imagine he stood stunned. I mean, 
There's no way he heard this from his mom. Child that he was, he did soon muster a reply. Thank you. No, I will not be going. She said, no, you're going, get dressed and get in the car. (laughs) And of course, there's much protesting, but you said I could decide. And she ushered this phrase that has lived with him for a long time. I'll paraphrase it a bit for you today. You will have the authority to make decisions when you have the wisdom to make the right ones. (laughs) And that is, of course, how my dad became a pastor. So you want your child to be a pastor, send them to vacation Bible school. Look in that pamphlet. It's, it's how, that's the message. Okay, good. I can leave. Uh, no. Uh, <laughs> but those words, you have the authority to make decisions when you have the wisdom to make the right ones. They kind of echoed in my head because I see something similar in our passage today. And I want to break all those sermon rules for a moment. I'm just going to tell you what I've seen as the main message of this passage up front. You have plenty of time to decide whether or not you think that's true by the end, Okay. Because as I read the text for today, I heard my grandmother's words. And I want to suggest this, that authority might not actually look like we think it does. That true authority is God's alone. Any authority we experience is entrusted to us only for a time and is probably going to look a lot more like service and sacrifice than ruling. I want to say that again. True authority is God's alone. Any authority we experience is entrusted to us only for a time and will probably look more like service and sacrifice than ruling. See, authority in God's kingdom is not about what you have. It's not something you earn with age or position, status or ability. It's not something you get because you have a bachelor's degree or a doctoral degree. It's not something you're eternally blessed with for being Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. True authority rests in God. Any authority we experience is just a result of adhering to his calling. So instead of thinking of authority as belonging to someone or being earned by someone, maybe we should think of authority as entrusted or borrowed for a time. Because in this world, God raises leaders, but they rarely stay in power. They're temporal. They're for a place and time. So what does a person entrusted with authority look like? See, authority, and actually this is, there's a slide for this, sorry. Throwing everyone off. What does a person entrusted with authority look like? Authority is entrusted to a person with eyes to see and ears to hear the needs of others. It's entrusted not to one who sees injustice to oneself, but one who risks injustice to oneself who takes on the role of leadership with humility and then steps down with equal humility. That can be a lot to take in. So I want to give you guys, there's, there's a short way of maybe remembering this. Three words here. It's entrusted to a person with one, vision. Two, external care. And three, humility. And we're going to see that come up again. We're going to have, so we'll talk about that when we get towards the end. The story we have today describes someone who's like that. It's a story about greed and revenge and how God uses a person with ears to hear to save a village from destruction. But where are we today in Samuel? See, last week we heard from 1 Samuel 24. And we saw that David had an opportunity to kill Saul. And yet he held his hand. Though he had a good reason 
to act out of anger and revenge, to kill Saul and begin establishing that kingdom that he was promised. He didn't. So we arrive at chapter 25, and we receive this news in verse 1. Now Samuel died, and all Israel assembled and mourned him, and they buried him in his house at Ramah. Then David rose and went down to the wilderness of Param. Samuel was a man of God. He was not always really loved for his actions, but he was still regarded. And we need to remember, Samuel's actually the guy who anointed David in the first place. He's the one who said that God's intentions for him were to be the king of Israel, to lead his people. Samuel's death would have been grieved by David. And it leaves this question. Who's going to voice God's will for his people? We're in this transitional period of loss and pressure. David would have felt it. We have David here in the wilderness, aware that the man that said he would be king is now dead, and David is not yet king. He lost a mentor, an advisor, and a friend. But here within this one verse, there's this interesting mirrored structure. See, we find out not only that Samuel died, but that David arose. You hear that transitional language? Samuel died, but David rose. In fact, we're only a few chapters away from when David finally does take his throne, but he's not there yet. He's still in the wild, and that's a strange place for a king. You have to imagine that weighed on David as the story unfolds. And so it begins. Verse 2. And there was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. Wow. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Now the name of the man was Nabal, and the name of his wife, Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful, but the man was harsh and badly behaved. He was a Calebite. No, no, okay. Um, (laughs) In a place where wealth is a measure of sheep and goats, Nabal is a very wealthy man. His wealth would have made him an authority in his village. He's most likely the employer of a great number of people who he pays to take care of his animals. But there's several clues here as to why we should be worried about Nabal. And the first one is his name. See, Nabal is not the name a mother gives to the child that she loves. His name literally means fool. Now, you don't need a seminary degree to to know that If a man's name is fool, you should be worried about him being an authority, okay? And we should pay attention to the words, very rich. See, there are different ways of talking about riches in the Bible. In fact, I want to talk about four particular ones. There are riches in what you do. There are riches in what you know. There are riches in your character. And there are riches in what you have. Riches in what you do. You can think of like David and Goliath, what happened on that day. It was a great rich. There are riches in what you know. You can think of someone like Samuel in that way. Great wisdom and leadership. There are riches in your character, the person that you are. And there are riches in what you have, riches of possession. This last kind of riches is the lowest form of riches. Having great riches of only this last kind without riches in what you do, what you know, or in your character, is a recipe for disaster time and time again throughout the Bible. 
If you only have riches of possession, you're on a road to be like Nabal. And then there's Abigail, his wife, who's without doubt way too good for him. So for all of you out there in despair over the person who who your friend's in a relationship with, no, it's all right. Even in biblical times, there was a person who was attached to a huge fool. I even thought for a moment of starting this support group uh, called the Wives of Fools. I think we have a good, like, icon for this. Yeah, there we go. Uh, Then I shortly realized that my wife would absolutely be the first to join, and I think we should just go on from there. But really, Abigail is someone to look to, not only in terms of living in a difficult relationship, but for anyone who strives to live humbly and confidently in a difficult situation. She's also someone someone who's going to show us today that regardless of your views on how that relationship between a husband and wife work out, the one thing the Bible definitely doesn't teach is that you should follow a fool to his grave. Okay? So we have Nabal, Abigail, and David. And watch what happens as they interact. Verse 4. David heard in the wilderness that Nabal was shearing his sheep. So David sent ten young men, and David said to the young men, Go up to Carmel, and go to Nabal, and greet him in my name. And thus you shall greet him. Peace be to you, and peace be to your house, and peace be to all that you have. I hear that you have shearers. Now your shepherds have been with us, and we did them no harm. And they missed nothing all the time they were in Carmel. Ask your young men, and they will tell you. Therefore, let my young men find favor in your eyes, for we come on a feast day. Please give whatever you have at, your, at hand to your servants and to your son David. When David's young men came, they said all this to Nabal in the name of David, and then they waited. A man like Nabal, with his substantial goats and sheep, would need to send his animals out into the wilderness to graze. In the wilderness the animals and caretakers would be at risk of being attacked by outlaws and thieves. So David's doing a common and necessary, though unofficial, kind of work. He is offering them protection. Yeah? He's making sure that Nabal's animals and caretakers are unharmed and unstolen by raiders or other outlaws. I think we have an image of what he might be doing. Now, there's no official charge for this protection that David is offering. You know, he does it for free, but there's the expectation that there should be certain gifts afterwards. And when those gifts aren't given, well, the sheep and goats sometimes find themselves a little less well protected. It sounds a little Godfather-esque to us, probably, but to call David a mafia boss would not really be accurate. This wasn't some kind of underground racket. Protection was an actual, true, and valuable service for men like Nabal. They depended on it to keep their animals safe from raids. But you can say this. This is not the kind of work one would expect from the future ruler of Israel. And David would know this. And Nabal, right now, is shearing his sheep. This is a big time of year. You see, Sheep don't make a lot of money for their owners most of the year until you finally get to shear them and sell off all that wonderful wool. So he's making a good amount of money, and he would be expected to act with generosity and host a huge feast for all his people. David's message to Nabal 
would have been very typical and expected on this kind of day. His men had offered protection to Nabal. In return, tradition would have Nabal offer food and gifts to David and his men. Nabal's reply, however, was not particularly traditional. We have it in verse 10. And Nabal answered David's servants, Who is David? Who is this son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I killed from my shearers and give it to men who come from I don't know where? Not only does Nabal deny David the expected compensation for his work, he insults him in the process. You see, Nabal knows exactly who David is. David is famous through all of Israel. He's the boy who killed Goliath. He's the one who was anointed to be king. He's pursued by Saul. People know this. So what Nabal's really saying is, who does David think he is? And he belittles him, calling him a rebellious servant. And the other thing Nabal does is reveal his character again. You hear it when he talks about his wealth. My bread, my water, my meat, my shearers. See, Nabal views all of his success, all his belongings and riches, the things that give him authority, they view, he views them all as his own. He's built himself on these things. Not only is a person who thinks like this a poor leader, a person who thinks like this, I want to suggest, cannot be generous. See, much like authority, we need to not think of things we have as earned or deserved. Instead, we should think of them as entrusted or borrowed. Biblical generosity starts not by saying, this is mine, but I'll offer it to you. It thinks, God gave me this, so I'm glad to share it with you. That's what generosity looks like. So Nabal is consistently showing us how to be a poor leader. Let's see how David responds. Verse 12. So David's young men turned away and came back and told him all this. And David said to his men, Every man strap on his sword. And every man of them strapped on his sword. David also strapped on his sword. There's a lot of sword strapping going on, if you missed that. And about 400 men went up after David, while 200 remained with the baggage. But this is not a great moment for David. He's been mistreated. He's out for vengeance. Strangely enough, his character at this moment is the exact opposite of what we saw last week. See, last Sunday, he spared Saul's life, though Saul insulted him and even tried to kill him. However, when Nabal insults him, he reacts violently. Perhaps it's because Nabal is so clearly beneath him that the insult hurts more. Maybe it's David's insecurity after Samuel's death. Either way, David is prepared to do incredible damage to Nabal's town, an army of 400 warriors against a smaller village. And this is when Abigail steps in, in verse 14. But one of the young men told Abigail, Nabal's wife, Behold, David sent messengers out of the wilderness to greet our master, and he railed at them. Yet the men were very good to us, and we suffered no harm. 
And we did not miss anything when we were in the fields as long as we went with them. They were a wall to us, both by day and by night. All the while we were with them, keeping the sheep. Now therefore know this, and consider what you should do. For harm is determined against our master and against all his house. And he is such a worthless man that one cannot speak to him. Nabal does not come off well in this story. Unlike Nabal, though, Abigail has ears to hear her servants. In this moment, Abigail has to make a choice. See, in the culture of her time, the job is pretty clear. She used to defer to the authority of her husband. To act against the expressed will of her husband was not only uncommon, it would be seen as a significant insult to his leadership. And yet, to not act is to allow injustice to be done to David, an injustice that would lead him to exacting revenge not only on Nabal, but a host of innocent people. To not act is to endanger the lives of many people. And she has to decide whether or not to act with a kind of rebellious authority in this situation. She doesn't wait long to decide. Verse 18. Then Abigail made haste and took 200 loaves and two skins of wine and five sheep already prepared and five seahs of parched grain and a hundred clusters of raisins and 200 cakes of figs and laid them on donkeys. And she said to her young men, Go on before me. Behold, I come after you. But she did not tell her husband Nabal. And as she rode on the donkey and came down under the cover of the mountain, behold, David and his men came down toward her, and she met them. Now David had said, Surely in vain have I guarded all that this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missed of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. God do so to the enemies of David, and more also, if by morning I leave as much as one male of all who belong to him. Let me pause to make sure that sinks in. See, David is in a sense justified in seeking retribution. But what he's describing here is something terrible. This moment, what David's thinking about is not God's will or God's direction. He's thinking about his own pride and honor. The boy who fought Goliath is now asking God to come fight his enemies for him. Even more, David intends not to wipe out just Nabal, but all the people in Nabal's household. To kill every male in that village is to wipe a whole people from the earth. What David is proposing is mass murder, eradication, to a group of people who themselves have not really done anything, clearly done anything wrong to David or to God. For a man who spent the several last chapters running away from Saul and, th- and knowing that Saul is behaving angry, angry, desperate, and out for revenge, Suddenly, David is looking a whole lot like Saul. In this moment, David is hardly the hero king we usually talk about in Sunday school. But let's just see what happens as the story unfolds. Verse 23. When Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, On me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your ears and hear the words of your servant. 
Let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name, so is he. It's one of the great biblical insults. Nabal is his name. Folly is with him. See, in this moment, with David enraged, Abigail rides out there before him. Watch the physical language. She rides out along with her offering. She rides out on a donkey and descends from the donkey, putting herself on equal ground with him, which is already a sign of respect. But she takes it a step further. She bows down. She's expressing allegiance to David while also putting herself at his mercy. And she goes on to explain the situation. And you're going to need to bear with me on this one. We have a lot of text here. And she's going to use the words, my Lord and the Lord, at least 13 times in a row. Little hint at reading it. If the L is lowercase, she's talking about David. Uppercase, God. It's a little convoluted and it's tricky. It'll be easier if you read it, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. (laughs) But I, your servant, did not see the young men of my Lord whom you sent. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives... And as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. And now let this present that your servant has brought to my Lord be given to the young men who follow my Lord. Please forgive the trespass of your servant, for the Lord will certainly make my Lord a sure house, because my Lord is fighting the battles of the Lord." And evil shall not be found in you so long as you live. If men rise up to pursue you and to seek your life, the life of my Lord shall be bound in the bundle of the living care of the Lord your God. And the lives of your enemies he shall sling out as from the hollow of a sling. She's seriously buttering him up here. Okay, there's even a sling reference in here. Like, ah, I know that David and Goliath story. Gotcha. <laughs> She's actually being incredibly smart here. You see, where her husband insulted David, she is heaping on praise and blessing. Where her husband pretended not to know him, she's specifically saying things to make sure she says, I know who you are. And she's not done yet. Verse 30. And when the Lord is done to my Lord, according to all the good that he has spoken concerning you, and has appointed you prince over Israel, my Lord shall have no cause of grief or pangs of conscience for having shed blood without cause, or for my Lord working salvation himself. And when the Lord has dealt well with my Lord, then remember your servant. And David said to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you who have kept me this day from blood guilt and from working salvation with my own hand. See, this is David's best quality. He messes up so often in the Bible, so often, and yet every time he's willing to admit it, recognize it, learn from it. It's his best quality. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me, truly my morning, there had been not, not been left to Nabal so much as one male. Then David received from her hand what she had brought him and said to her, Go up in peace to your house. See, I have obeyed your voice, and I've granted your petition. And Abigail came to Nabal, and behold, he was hosting a feast in his house 
like the feast of a king. And Nabal's heart was merry within him, for he was very drunk. So she told him nothing at all until the morning light. This is a good, this is a wise decision. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him, and he became as a stone. And about ten days later, the Lord struck Nabal, and he died. When David heard that Nabal was dead, he said, Blessed be the Lord, who has avenged the insult I received at the hand of Nabal, and has kept back his servant from wrongdoing. The Lord has returned the evil of Nabal on his own head. So a simple question at this point. If we're looking at this story, who's the hero? Who's the one who represents the view of authority from before? See, we have this greedy and callous man named Nabal who represents his name very well. Not a very good candidate. We have David, a vengeful would-be king who set himself out to wipe out a village because someone insulted and cheated him. And at the last minute, he was taught that vengeance is the Lord. David's usually the guy, but in this chapter, I'm just not seeing it. So we're left with Abigail, a woman who defies her husband to do what is just. And if there's one character in this story whose actions demonstrate humble adherence to God's calling and character in her particular place and her particular time, if one person is reflecting God's will and character in the story, it's Abigail. The woman who defied and even mocked her husband, but in doing so, honors a commitment, stays a vengeful hand, and preserves the life of her people. So this is just a big, God says, when you don't like the decisions of your spouse or the leadership, you just go and do the opposite thing, right? You stick it to the man, yeah? Amen. No, no, amen. Don't, don't say that. Because it, it sort of is, but it's not. See, Abigail is without doubt engaging in a kind of rebellious authority here. She's taking matters into her own hands and criticizing the poor choices of her husband. But she does it in a particular way. I'd like to go back to what I said in the beginning about authority being trusted. Authority is entrusted to the person with eyes to see and ears to hear the needs of others. It's entrusted not to one who sees injustice to oneself, but one who risks injustice to oneself who takes on the role of leadership with humility and steps down with equal humility. See, if you want to be engaged in rebellious authority, awesome. But this is what it looks like according to the story of Abigail. It's three things coming together. And I think there's even a slide that has these three things spelled out. Three things. One, vision. You have eyes to see and ears to hear what's wrong. The servants approached Abigail, not Nabal, for they knew that she would listen and he would not. Two, external care. Abigail, unlike David in this story, is motivated by concern for her people rather than for herself. For the wife of a ruler to ride out alone to meet an outlaw, particularly one bent on slaughtering her village, she's risking her life for her people. This rebellious action by Abigail is not not some kind of power grab. It's sacrifice. And three, humility. But we're going to see that in just a little bit. Humility. Every action Abigail takes 
is characterized by humility. From the very start, she descends from her donkey when meeting him. It's a significant honor. She bows down. She asks that all the guilt of her people be put on her. If you don't see a foreshadowing of Christ in Abigail's actions, then I think you're closing your eyes. She rides on a a donkey. Having done no wrong, lays herself before a group that wants her people dead willingly takes the guilt of others on herself. Though she's the wife of a leader in this place, she lowers herself as a servant throughout. So if you want to be a rebellious authority, please do. But know that to do that is to take on the humility of Christ. To lead not for yourself, but for others. See, authority in God's kingdom looks way more like sacrifice and servanthood than ruling. Authorities like we see in Abigail are those who lower themselves to do God's will. And I want to pause a moment. Do we ever stop after reading a story to ask ourselves, which person do I actually look like? It's a really humbling experience. See, there's a part of me that's afraid that I look like Nabal. I think about how I make my decisions. Do I make decisions to cultivate Riches in what I know, what I do, or in my character? Or how many of my decisions are just bent on how do I preserve the riches that I have? And I'm afraid that often I look like David. I mean, I don't really want to go there, but just think about the way Christians use social media when something doesn't go our way. We react angrily. We react wanting vengeance. And we need to learn the lesson that David keeps having to learn. Stop acting vengefully. There is a time to stand for your beliefs, but we also cross that line time and again into revenge, into defense of self. Don't forget that God is sovereign. He's going to make all things right. No matter the side or outcome or situation, whether things work out as you wished, whether you feel like you've been ignored or pushed aside, God is on his throne. Did we not see that Nabal, after his wrongs, He died. Sometimes we forget that God is actually in control, and sometimes we forget that God actually does bring justice. You can count on God to do that. We don't need to work it for ourselves. So how do we adjust our stature, tune our hearts to reflect a character that's more Christ-like, that's more in keeping with the demeanor Abigail demonstrated for us? How do we cultivate an attitude of rebellious service? I think the easiest way to get to it is asking, what's the posture of our hearts? What do we care about? Nabal cares about his possessions. David cares about the way he's regarded and treated. Abigail cares about her people. That posture is what makes Abigail someone with ears to hear her people's needs. That makes her someone who will sacrifice herself for her people someone who steps into leadership with humility. But there is this last part of the passage today that we really shouldn't ignore. It's in verse 39. Let's look there. Then David sent and spoke to Abigail to take her as his wife. When the servants of David came to Abigail at Carmel, they said to her, David sent us to you to take you to him as his wife. And she rose and bowed with her face to the ground and said, Behold, your handmaid is a servant to wash the feet of the servants of my Lord. And Abigail hurried and rose and mounted a donkey. 
and her five young women attended her. She followed the messengers of David and became his wife. David also took Ahinoam of Jezreel, and both of them became his wives. Saul had given Michael, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was of Galim. See, Abigail, without doubt, was the honorable one of this passage. She risked her neck for her people. So when all is done, Abigail should get some like kind of crown or palace or be like the wife for David, yeah? But it's not exactly working that way. See, she's made David's wife, but not his sole wife. She's going to be sharing David with another woman. I don't think this is the honor or reward that one might expect after risking their neck. But I do think that this last action might be the thing that speaks most to Abigail's character. See, imagine if all people were so humble that even after doing something remarkable, they took on the next stage of their life with gratitude, whether they were properly rewarded or whether they faded into obscurity. We won't hear about Abigail again. She certainly does fade. And yet she does so. The message, her words, are full of gratitude. Imagine if our leaders did that kind of thing. And I want to leave us with a challenge. See, Abigail had eyes to see and ears to hear her servants. Are you someone like that? Am I someone like that? Do we have ears to hear and eyes to see? Whose needs are we attuned to? Whose pain do we recognize? Just take a minute and think about it. I'd even encourage you to write it down if that helps you remember it. Who do you have ears to hear and eyes to see? And as you think about that, start to think about how can you take action with humility in your situation? After all, as my grandmother said, you have the authority to make your own decisions when you have the wisdom to make the right ones. And I would encourage you to go, to start making the right decisions, to go and act, not for yourself, but for his glory and his kingdom. Go not expecting any kind of reward, but with gratitude take on whatever comes next. Go to his glory. Would you pray with me? Dear God, help us to be grateful for the opportunities that we do have. And help us to not make excuses when we hear the pain of others. Help us not to stay silent, but help us to act with a courageous humility. Help us to see the way that Christ enacted change on this earth and help us to use that as a model for our behavior. To your glory and for your kingdom. Amen.